money. Money, 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 money. Money. Money, 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 money. Some people got to have it. Some people really need it. Listen to me. Why do you all do things, do things, do bad things with it? For the love of money, people will lie. Oh, they will cheat. People don't care who they hurt or beat. For the love of money, for a small piece of paper, it carries a lot of weight. Call it lean, mean, mean green, almighty dollar. I know money is the root of all evil. Do funny things to some people. All for the love of money, don't let, don't let, don't let money rule you. Amen? Let's pray. It's not over, but we're going to pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us through your word. I pray, O oh God, that it would speak to us, that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that you would open the hearts and minds of the people to hear your word, that you would allow me to speak only that which is in conjunction and confirmation to your word. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the introduction you just enjoyed, or if you're under 50, completely missed, was from the 1973 song, yeah, 50 years ago, called For the Love of Money. Does anyone know who sang it? The OJs, yes. Awesome. Please be thankful that I didn't sing it this morning. However, I was tempted to grab Mike's bass and play the intro. I used to play, I love that introduction. But that would be cheesy even for me. Now, although the lyrics to that song seem to center around a misquoting of 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, money in and of itself not being the root of all evil, but the love of it being the issue. The lyrics I read do convey a powerful message. And the song's title is, after all, for the love of money, so I suppose we can give them a pass on this one. Now, our text for this morning will not be 1 Timothy 6, but one closely related to it. So please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, and read along silently as I read aloud one single verse, verse 5. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When you think of the book of Hebrews, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Maybe before the question of who wrote it. And I got the answer, God wrote it, so let's move on. But seriously, when considering the book of Hebrews, what comes to my mind is a phrase that goes something like this. Christ is greater. Christ is supreme. Christ is greater. Christ is supreme. Now, the first 12 chapters of this book demonstrate that Christ is greater than all who and all that came, humanly speaking, before him. Let me a moment to explain. The book of Hebrews, and the title is Hebrews, references the Old Testament, specifically the Old Covenant, 40 times. 
And it reviews the old covenant in order to show that it was a foreshadowing of the new covenant. And furthermore, it demonstrates, without a doubt, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Christ is greater, greater than angels, greater than prophets, greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, greater than the Sabbath. It demonstrates that the new covenant in his blood makes the old Mosaic covenant obsolete. His blood, greater than the blood of bulls and goats. His presence is greater than the tabernacle and the temple. And faith in Christ is greater than obedience to the law. Christ is greater. Christ is supreme. Hebrews chapters 1 to 12 is for the most part orthodoxy. In other words, teaching correct doctrine or right belief. So when we arrive at chapter 13, we have for the most part orthopraxy, teaching right practice or right living. In other words, since Christ is greater and Christ is supreme and we have faith in him, how then should we, believers in Christ, live? So chapter 13 provides some practical instruction. Verse 1, if you have your Bible still open, verse 1 tells you to love your fellow Christians. Check. Verse 2, be hospitable. Check. Verse 3, pray for those who are in jail on account of the gospel. Check. Verse 4, be sexually moral. Check, check, double check. Then we come to our verse for today. Do not covet, be content. Do not covet, but be content. Because Christ is greater, Christ is supreme, and he is with you. Therefore, do not covet, be content. So we see in our verse that there are two commands. A negative command, do not, and a positive command, do. Now, depending on which translation you have, the do not command may be to not covet, or it may be not to have a life characterized by the love of money, and both of which we will explore today, Lord willing. We're going to start with the more literal rendering here, and it's what we have in the ESV and the NASB and the HCSB and the NIV, which is keep your life free from the love of money. Literally, a love of silver. And that's what we're going to examine first before extending it to covetousness in general. So what does it mean to love money? What does a lover of money look like? Is it the Monopoly man? Does anyone know the character's real name? Close. Rich Uncle Pennybags. I did not know that. So when you study the word of God, your mind opens all sorts of meaning. Yeah, Rich Uncle Pennybags. And this is not in my notes, but you notice he doesn't have a monocle. There's a myth, a popular myth that he has, like an eye. He does not. So I've corrected more false doctrine today. <laughs> but is a lover of money look like that guy? Or is a lover of money the type of person described in the OJ song during the intro? Perhaps, right? Or is the problem the money itself? Or is it the things that we usually associate with money? Things like power, prestige, possessions, peace of mind. But let's be clear. We already know this, but let's be clear that money in and of itself is not evil. 
It's the love of money that's behind the evil. Amen? And that is, of course, 1 Timothy 6.10. If you back up one verse to 1 Timothy 6.9, we see an explanation of the verse to follow. Paul writes, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Then he writes, 1 Timothy 6.10, he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. There we have it. The love of money. This could be what's described in Jesus' parable of the sower concerning the seed that fell among the thorns. In Matthew 13.22, the Lord says this, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And earlier in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus puts it very clearly. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or... He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's like rooting for the Mets and the Yankees. I'm a New York fan. That's ridiculous. It doesn't work. You must love the Mets and hate the Yankees. No. But seriously, Christians, you cannot serve God and money. So free yourself from the love of money. The preacher in Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. And don't we see this day after day? When we look in the news and we hear of celebrities, millionaire rock stars and movie stars who have money, 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 but are in fact miserable. Some, sadly, even to the point of taking their own lives. You see, money doesn't solve the problem. Money can't fix what's broken. The problem is sin, and what's broken is us. You see, we were created to worship. And when the object of that worship is not our creator, we will worship something else. It could be money. It could be fame. It could be comfort. Most often, it's ourselves that we worship. Money is just a means to that end. So Christian, keep your life free from the love of money. Why? Because Christ is greater, Christ is supreme, and Christ is with you. Amen? Brothers and sisters, keep your life also free from covetousness in general. We already know you cannot serve God in money, but you cannot serve God and anything. Yahweh will not allow any other gods before him. The older translations, King James, New King James, Geneva Bible says, let your conversation be without covetousness. Now, conversation in that context means the way that you behave, not what you say. Let your life be without covetousness. Now, listen to this lengthy quote by A.W. Pink. It's going to be up here so you can follow along. 
A.W. Pink concerning covetousness says this. He says, let not covetousness rule your heart nor regulate your life. But exactly what is covetousness? It is the opposite of contentment, of being dissatisfied with our present lot and portion. It is an overeager desire for the things of this world. It is a lusting after what God has forbidden or withheld from us, for we may crave wrongly after things which are not evil or injurious in themselves. All abnormal and irregular desires, all unholy and inordinate thoughts and affections are comprehended by this term. To covet is to think upon and to hanker after anything which my acquirement of would result in an injury to my neighbor. Now, Pink quotes a man named Thomas Scott here. He goes on, we may desire that part of a man's property which he's inclined to dispose of if we mean to obtain it on equitable terms. But when he chooses to keep, we must not covet. The poor man may desire moderate relief from the rich, but he must not covet his affluence or repine even though he does not relieve him. Both of these men just alluded to the 10th commandment. And in Exodus 20, 17, we read, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. Now we agree with the law here, amen? Let me ask you this question. What are you coveting right now? What are you coveting right now? Take a second in your mind, identify what it is or what things they are that you are coveting. What is being withheld from you right now that you think you can't live without? If you're a note taker, write it down. What do I covet? I covet. Is it someone else's money, their health, their possessions, their wealth, their spouse, their children, their friends, their career, their status, their appearance, their height, their weight, their athleticism, their intelligence, their position in this church? You fill in the blank. I covet blank. Covetousness reveals our lack of contentment with what God has graciously given us. Let me say it again. Covetous reveals our lack of contentment with what God has graciously given us. Sometimes our own covetous thoughts are not as observable to others, or even to ourselves, if we're so used to envying others for what they have. So to help us identify the signs of a covetous heart, I want to briefly examine three biblical examples of what not to do. And in doing so, I want you to further notice three characteristics of a covetous man. Now, there are many more examples in the Bible, but we only have time for three this morning. So, as I go on, I want you to discover that a covetous man is, one, a faithless man, two, a thankless man, and three, a greedy man. A covetous man is, one, a faithless man, two, a thankless man, and three, a greedy man. And our examples, out of the multitude of poor examples in the Bible, 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all except one. Our three examples are going to be, number one, Eve, the mother of all the living. Number two, Haman, the Agagite from the book of Esther. And number three, the rich young ruler from the Gospels. So number one, the case of Eve. In Genesis 3.6, we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Now, earlier in the book, the Lord had expressively told Adam and Eve that they were forbidden to eat from the fruit from that tree. They could eat of the other trees, but not that one. But when tempted, at that moment, she did not believe God. Eve was faithless. She did not have faith. She did not trust. She was not content with what she had, which was paradise. Like, not, like literally paradise. Within which it seems from the text that she and Adam enjoyed the actual physical presence of the Lord. Unimaginable. But she was not content with that. She wanted to taste. She wanted to look. She wanted knowledge. She wanted to be like God. She didn't believe God, so she coveted. And took it and ate, gave some to Adam, and he did likewise. And here we are. Here we are. So in that moment, Eve was a covetous woman, and a covetous woman is a faithless woman. Do not faithlessly covet like Eve did. Be content with what God has graciously given you. Moving on. Case number two. The case of Haman, the Agagite. In the book of Esther, there was a man named Haman who was given a promotion within the Medo-Persian Empire. And King Azurus had promoted him to a position above all the other officials from India to Ethiopia. In Esther 3.2, we read, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Now, hold on. Leave it up there. So this guy, Haman, he had it all, right? He had power. He had prestige. He had position. He had everything except one man's respect, Mordecai, the Jew. As the verse continues, it says, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So this one man, this one man, this Mordecai didn't bow. He just stood there. And Haman was furious. You see, Haman was not thankful for all that he had. And he had a lot. He was not content. He coveted Mordecai's respect. And you know how the story goes. His plan to exterminate all the Jews, sound familiar? On account of Mordecai and Queen Esther, Mordecai's cousin being a secret Jew, risks her own life by entering the king's presence unbidden. Then he holds out the scepter, accepting her visit. She admits to being a Jew, and her people are given the right to defend themselves. And this, of course, is a tale of God's sovereignty and God's providence. Esther coming to her position for such a time as this, amen. But our example is Haman this morning. That's who we're interested in today. Haman built a gallows in a plan to hang Mordecai on it, but instead, he himself gets hung on it. 
Haman had every reason in the world to be content, every worldly reason to be content, yet he was not thankful. Instead, he coveted. He wanted more, and he paid for it with his life. You see, Haman was a covetous man, and a covetous man is a thankless man. Do not thanklessly covet like Haman did, but be content with what God has graciously given you. And now we move to the New Testament. Case number three, the rich young ruler. Now, we don't have a name for this young man. Today, I'll just refer to him as Rich or Richie Rich or just Rich. We find an account of this in Matthew 19, 16 to 22. Now, this one may hit a little closer to at home uh, with believers than even Haman did, but of course they do apply. So in Matthew 19, 16 to 22, we read this account. It says, And behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Wow, this young man knew the law and the commandments. And notice the Lord does not rebuke him when he says he's kept them. And this doesn't mean he's perfect, the young man. But the Lord did not rebuke him. But Jesus, knowing all men and miraculously knowing this young man's heart, heads right for his idol, his stuff. And so even though his question to Jesus seemed legitimate, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was an idolater at heart a covetous man, a lover of money. He was a greedy young man. Now, if we were to read on, we see that nothing is impossible with God. And finally, in context, that means even rich people can be saved. Therefore, we do not know the eternal standing of this young man. Uh, Perhaps he was one of the elect, and perhaps in this case he does repent later of his covetousness in due time. But at the time of the recording of this event, He was stuck in his greed. He was not to be contented with eternal life, even when the Lord himself offers it to him. He wanted his stuff too. So Rich was greedy. Rich was a lover of money. The rich young ruler was a covetous man, and a covetous man is a greedy man. Be content with what God has graciously given you. Do not be greedy like Rich was. So, we've seen a covetous man is a faithless man, a thankless man, and a greedy man. Christian, keep your life free from the love of money. Do not covet. The rest of Hebrews 13.5 says this, or moving on, it says this, and be content with what you have. 
So enough of the bad examples. No more don'ts. Here's a big do. Be content. Or in the King James, be ye content. John Gill explains contentment in this way. He says, contentment shows itself by thankfulness with every mercy and by submission to the will and providence of God in every state of life. And just like before, Lord willing, we're going to examine three characteristics now of a content man, and we're going to see, as opposed to a covetous man, a content man is a faithful man, a thankful man, and a generous man. A content man is a faithful man, a thankful man, and a generous man. But this time around, we'll only look at two examples, and we'll see all three characteristics in both of the men, from the lesser to the greater. Number one is the Apostle Paul, and number two is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So quickly, number one, the case of the Apostle Paul. The man who wrote in 1 Corinthians 11.1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now those of us who have been here Sunday after Sunday, starting on April 7th, 2019, over at Redeeming Grace Fellowship, and then picking up here at LBC a little bit after the merge on November 13th, 2022, know we've just finished preaching through the book of Acts. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, 56 sermons in all. And we've seen Paul's life unfold in sermon after sermon, from his zealous persecution of the church through his conversion to Christ, then to his being persecuted on behalf of the church of Christ. In Acts, we see Paul's character on full display. Also, due to the fact that he wrote the majority of the New Testament, we're now going to look to Paul's own account of the hardship that he endured as a prisoner of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11:23 to 27, Paul writes this. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, Danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This man, ladies and gentlemen, knew suffering. If there are any reason to not be content and to envy other people's lives, it would be Paul. But Paul was content. Paul was content. He was faithful, he was thankful, and he was generous. Faithful. Unlike Eve, Paul was a faithful man. When Paul was in prison at the end of his life, and church history does tell us he was beheaded at Rome, he writes the second letter to Timothy, knowing the end is near, he writes this, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Yes, we only have his word here, but they're holy inspired words, as well as church history tells us that he did indeed remain faithful to the end. Unlike faithless Eve, Paul fully trusted God's promises. 
and lived within God's prescribed will. We, he knew that to live is Christ and to die is gain, and he stood firm to the end. Paul was a content man, and a content man is a faithful na- uh, man. So have faith like Paul. Be content with what God has graciously given you. Number two, Paul was thankful. Unlike thankless Haman, Paul was the textbook definition of a thankful man. Now, these are going to be rapid fire, five verses real quick. Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Romans 7, 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that God has given you in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God, who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And there are many, many more. And often he's writing from a prison cell. Thanks be to God. Paul lived, but he wrote what he wrote in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus with thanksgiving. Paul was a content man, and a content man is a thankful man. Be thankful like Paul. Be content with what God has graciously given you. And finally, number three, Paul was generous. Unlike the greedy, rich, young ruler, Paul was a generous man. He was not a lover of money. In fact, in Acts 18, we learn that although Paul, as a missionary, as a traveling minister, as an evangelist, as a pastor, and as an apostle of Jesus Christ, who is worthy of his wages and to be compensated financially for his labors, he at times worked with his hands as a tent maker in order not to be an undue burden on the churches that he visited and ministered to. Paul was not in it for the money. But even more importantly than money, Paul poured himself out for the sake of the gospel. He devoted his whole life to the gospel and may very well have been given, have given it up for the the gospel in Rome. In Philippians 2.17 we see Paul's willing attitude. He writes this, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial altar of faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul was generous with his time, he was generous with his money, and he was generous with his life. Paul was a content man, and a content man is a generous man. So be generous like Paul and be thankful for what God has graciously given you. And whom did Paul aim to be like? Who was Paul imitating? Christ is greater. Christ is supreme. Christ is greater than Paul in every way imaginable. Jesus was perfectly content. He was perfectly faithful. He was perfectly thankful. And he was perfectly generous. In that famous passage in Philippians 2, 6 to 8, we read about the Lord Jesus, who, although being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a human being, 100% human, Jesus was perfectly faithful. He had perfect faith in God the Father, and he was perfectly faithful to God the Father and to us, his people. In the passage from Philippians 2 that we just read, we see that Jesus was obedient to the point of death on the cross. Yes, he was faithful to the Father, and he trusted the Father's perfect plan of redemption. And as a perfect man, Jesus had perfect faith. In 1 Peter 2.23, we read that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Why? But continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. No, Jesus did not doubt his father in the garden. No. In Luke 22.41-42, we read, And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was perfectly faithful and had perfect faith in his Father and his perfect plan of redemption. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Christ is greater. Christ is supreme. Follow Jesus Christ. Number two, Jesus was perfectly thankful. As a human being, 100% human, Jesus was thankful to his Father. Jesus publicly thanked God on many occasions in Scripture. In John 6, 11, he thanked God the Father for the bread and fish that he, God the Son, was about to miraculously multiply in order to feed the 5,000. He thanked the Father for that. In Matthew 11, 25 to 26, Jesus interestingly thanked God the Father for hiding gospel truths from the religious leaders of his day. Let's look at it. Jesus prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And in John 11, 41 to 42, when Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he prayed this, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, obviously, Jesus was using his prayer of thanksgiving as a teaching moment, but he was not fake praying. He wasn't speaking to himself. He was honestly thanking the Father for his will. Jesus was perfectly thankful. Follow Jesus Christ. And lastly, Jesus was perfectly generous. The Lord of heaven and earth generously set aside his divine prerogatives. Again, Philippians 2, 6 to 8. The good shepherd generously laid down his life for his sheep. John 10, 28. The Savior generously gives eternal life to those that he wills. John 5, 21. The Lamb of God generously gave up his spirit and died on a cross, John 19.30. All this and much, much, much more. This shows Jesus' perfect contentment, perfect faithfulness, perfect thankfulness, perfect generosity. He was perfectly content in God the Father. Jesus Christ, the one that Paul imitated, the author and perfecter of our faith, in whose likeness we, those of us who are in Christ, in whose likeness we are being conformed into. So, to the ears of the sheep here, 
I, as an under-shepherd, say to you, be content with what you have here and now while looking forward to what's to come. Be content with what you have here and now while looking forward to what is to come because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's the end of Hebrews 13, verse 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that leads to the power that is behind contentment. The power that now to him who is able to do far more than we ask or think according to the power within us, which is Christ within us. Amen? Paul also says in Colossians 1, 28 to 29, he says, him, Christ, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all in his energy that he powerfully works within me. God's power, God's energy, Christ in me. And we all know Galatians 2.20. When Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ in us. Do you grasp the magnificence of that reality? That's the because. When the writer to the Hebrews gives his command for holy living in Hebrews 13, 1 to 5, and beyond verse 5, he hinges our behavior on the because, on the therefore on the in light of the fact that God will never leave you nor forsake you if you belong to him. This promise to God's people was made in various forms throughout the Old Testament, most notably in Deuteronomy 31, 6 to 8, where the Lord says to Moses, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And then to Joshua, Moses' replacement, the Lord says this in Joshua 1.5, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And it occurs other times in the Old Testament as well. Now in our context this morning, because the writer to the Hebrews utilizes this promise, we can extend this promise to include not only a charge to be courageous, which boy do we need it in today's world, but also to be content. Be content with all that God has provided for us and all that he has withheld from us, all the pleasure and all the pain. Be content in him. Why? Because the Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. And like the Levitical priests of old, the Lord is our portion and our inheritance. Deuteronomy 18.1-2. And in Jeremiah 9.23-24, we read this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And who can overlook the promise that the Lord Jesus made to his disciples when charging them to go out in the Great Commission? Matthew 28, 18 to 20 reads this, Because all authority, another because, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus, 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christians, because God is with you and his spirit lives within you and the greater and supreme Christ is empowering you, be ye content. Keep your life free from the love of money. Do not covet what God has graciously withheld from you because he is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Never, no, never, never, never. Brothers and sisters, over the course of this morning, we've seen three poor biblical examples, those who were covetous, not content, faithless Eve, thankless Haman, greedy, richie rich, not to mention when I made us look in the mirror and saw our own bad example looking back up at us. And we have seen two good examples of contentment, well, one good one and one perfect example of faithfulness, of thankfulness, of generosity. But before we close and give some practical application, I want to add an important caveat regarding contentment. Yes, be content with all that you have. However, there is one area, one area in which we are never to be content with, and that is sin. Our own sin first, and then the sins of the world. Super quick, let's consider our two positive examples. Once again, really quickly, Paul and Jesus. Paul was not content with his own sin. Just read Romans 7. And wherever you come down with on Romans 7, where you believe he wrote that, you agree that he hated his own sin. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And he was definitely not content with the sins of those within his churches, true believers and false believers alike. He was often frustrated with the many sins of the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 11.4, he was livid over the fact that people were putting up with false teachers. In a sense, these people were content with the false teachers. It says this, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than, we, than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You don't care. You're content. And Paul was not happy with that. And in Galatians 5, Paul is not content with the false teaching of the Judaizers who demanded that Gentile believers be circumcised in order to be saved. They were adding a work to the pure gospel of faith, to which Paul retorts in Galatians 5.12. Get ready. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. It's figurative language. But that's how angry he was. It's not okay. Don't be content with a false gospel. I wish they would just get out of here. So Paul was not content with false teaching in his church. And then there's the perfect example of non-contentment with sin, of the perfect Christ, who had no sin of his own. Who could forget the story when Jesus drove out those selling animals for sacrifice and the money changers in the temple? Zeal for thy house has consumed me, says the Lord. Jesus was so righteously angry, he was so not content with what was going on there, that he actually fashioned a whip. Imagine Jesus Christ, meek and mild, crouching down, making a whip. What are you doing? Hold on. And he uses it to chase them out. He also flipped over their table, sending coins and feathers flying everywhere. Can you imagine that? He was not content with that. 
And even more importantly, Jesus was not content with leaving the world dented their trespasses and sins. We cannot imitate this high priestly duty. We can love each other to the point of death, but we cannot take his place as high priest, as James read earlier today. But let's consider it. Jesus Christ came to earth, humbling himself, taking on himself human flesh, living a life of perfect obedience to the Father, the life that none of us could ever live, yet laying down this perfect life for his sheep. But not staying dead, no. After being the propitiation for our sins, he rose again on the third day. Then sometime later, he ascended into heaven to the Father's right hand, where he lives forever to make intercession for his people. If you do not know this Christ today, do not be content. Don't be content. Do not delay. Put your faith and trust in the Messiah today, and you will discover that Christ is greater than your sin, and he is supreme over all that is. Thank God Jesus was not content with the sin of the world. So, our application. We have four simple points of application that go directly in the message and is directly from the message. Application point number one, from the very beginning, identify what you covet. Search your hearts for things that you are coveting. If you wrote any down earlier, begin with these things. Remember, these items may not be sinful in and of themselves. They can be positive things. But if they are someone else's or just withheld from you right now from God, you need to mark them and confess them and let them go. Confess them to the Lord first and foremost, and then to a more mature brother or sister in Christ. Application point number one, identify what you covet. Application point number two, pray to the Lord for the enabling grace to let go of what you sinfully covet. Pray to the Lord for his enabling grace to let go of what you sinfully covet. Daily ask him for the strength to let your idols go. You'll be surprised that he'll grant you freedom from their bondage. Because where the Lord is, there's freedom. Application point number two is pray to the Lord for his enabling grace to let go of what you sinfully covet. Application point number three, be content. Be content. Be content with what you presently possess now, what station of life you're in now, what you're going through now, what you've been given now, and what he has withheld from you now. Application point number three, be content. And finally, application point number four, we just heard it, don't be content. Don't be content with your sin. Don't live with it. Don't say, oh, it's a struggle. Oh, I'm only human. Mortify your flesh. Kill it daily. Confess and repent. Confess and repent. Confess and repent. Tomorrow's another day. His mercies are new every morning. Application point for do not be content with your sin. So in closing, let's close it out by hearing Paul's testimony regarding his key to contentment. In Philippians 4, 11 to 13, Paul writes this. For I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Finally, in context, I can do all things through Christ who, Christ who strengthens me. I can be content 
through Christ who strengthens me. Christ is greater. Christ is supreme. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this day where we're able to seek you in your word. It's so easy to understand, but so hard to do apart from your grace. I pray that you would reveal to us through your Holy Spirit the reality of all we have in Christ and how even the worst suffering now does not compare to eternity with you. Please allow us to see things as they really are. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mouth to speak your word, feet and hands to do what you've willed us to do. I pray you be with us as we go. Thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.